What's considered the most livable city in the world? And what U.S. president is responsible for one of our most famous coffee advertising slogans? <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and have a good half hour of trivia. And here we are, Marsh, once again. Okay, Bob. Mm -hmm. What is considered the most livable city in the world? Hmm. I'm sure this changes probably every so many years. Well, this got it two years in a row. Oh, really? In this hemisphere? Is it in the Western Hemisphere? North or South America? No. No. All right, the most livable city in the world. Mm. It got over 99 points out of 100 from the uh, magazine Economist. Okay. Uh, Global Livability Index. And you know this place? We have I were, been to this place? We both have together. London? No. Paris? No. Amsterdam? No. Vienna? Yes. Vienna, Austria? No yes. kidding. Yes, yes. In 2019, for two years in a row, the Austrian capital scored over 99 points out of 100 on the Economist Global Livability Index, and the annual report assesses more than 30 factors across five key areas, stability, health care, culture and environment, education, and infrastructure. Wow, I would have never known that. No, I would have guessed it was one like Amsterdam or something like that. Or even a city that's like in, you know, the mountains or something like that. All right, Marcia, here's my first question for you. It's another U.S. president question. Oh, you love them, oh, don't joy. you? Oh, joy. Oh, <laughs> joy. Okay, what U.S. president is responsible for one of our most famous coffee advertising slogans? That's crazy. Okay, it's not good to the very last drop. That's just... exactly right. It doesn't sound kosher, so... Who would that be? Oh, it is? That's the yeah, right thing? That's, that's the right one. Good to the last drop. You're kidding. No. Oh, I was being funny. No. <laughs> uh, well... Who is the president? Uh, Ulysses Grant. No, later. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Not oh, that he... late. <laughs> <laughs> peanuts. It's all about peanuts. Okay. I love this coffee. This is coffee. It's really good. No. <laughs> No, 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 no. Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was dining at the old Andrew Jackson home, the Hermitage, in Nashville, and he was served some Maxwell House coffee from Nashville's Maxwell House Hotel. That was where the coffee oh, came yeah, from. Oh, yeah, okay. And uh, he was asked if he wanted another cup of coffee, and he was quoted as saying, Will I have another? Delighted. <laughs> it's good to the last drop. Oh, and there goes advertising history. And that's where it went. Uh, is, that, is that Teddy Roosevelt's Teddy voice? Roosevelt. That's the way he talked like to me it. back I... in the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Bob. Where did the term honeymoon first come from? The term like honeymoon. This. Seems like this goes back to Roman times or Everything something. goes back to Roman times. But this is the 5th century, actually. Oh, okay. So I guess it had something to do with honey and a moon. <laughs> I, I don't know how, how those two fit in together, but tell me. Well, back in the old good old 5th century, uh, you know, cultures represented calendar time with what? Moon cycles. Okay. Right? Yeah, so, sure. So back then, a newlywed couple drank mead, the honey. It was a form of honey during their first moon of marriage. 
It usually was supplied by the bride's father. Oh. And mead is a honey-based, heavily alcoholic drink believed to have aphrodisiac qualities. qualities. Ah. So, uh, so you get married, and over the honeymoon period, they just drank the honey, the mead for a month, the honey-based alcoholic <laughs> drink. So you could see how your first month might be sweet <laughs> <laughs> and drunk and crazy and full of sex because, uh, yeah, they wanted to have more offspring people. is what they wanted. Yeah. That's very good. Honeymoon. So the honey's from the mead, and the moon is the month, the first month. The mead, yeah. And uh, the British couples in the 19th century used their honeymoon to go on a bridal tour, where the pair traveled to visit friends and family who could not attend the wedding ceremony, which is a sweet idea, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have uh, moved into the realm of Marcia and have some... (laughs) You lucky man. ...animal questions for you, Marcia. All right. All right. This animal lives in every ocean but the polar regions. Yeah. It can live 80 years. It can dive 3,000 feet. It can swim as far as 9,000 miles a trip and uses the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. What is it? What animal is it? Do you want a hint? Of course. It's not a fish. Well, would it be a, some kind of reptilian It's thing? a reptile. Yeah. Can turtles dive that yes, far? Yes, it is a sea turtle. They can last as long as 80 years. They can breathe air, of course, but they can remain submerged for hours at a time, and leatherback sea turtles can dive up to 3,000 feet. See, that's what threw me up. My first thought was turtles, but when you said diving, I didn't know they could do that. Okay, now here's two more facts, all right? All right. They have been documented migrating incredible distances, sea turtles. One was tracked traveling more than 9,000 miles from Baja, California to Japan. Wow. Now, why would they go that far? Well, remember in Finding Nemo, the turtles rode the currents right. under the, under the, the ocean, ocean currents. Yeah. yeah. Well, the point, though, here I'm making is why would they do that? Because female sea turtles always return to the beach where they hatch yeah. whenever it's time to lay their own eggs. So they may have hatched somewhere and traveled for 20 years, and then they have their own babies, and they go back to that original place. Yeah. And how do they navigate? They use the Earth's magnetic fields. They found this out because researchers generated magnetic fields in the lab, and they demonstrated that they have the ability to detect it and use it as a way to orient themselves. Bob, why do we call someone who is left-handed a southpaw? Oh, that's a good question. Isn't it, though? Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought it had to do with baseball for it some does. reason. Does it? Okay. Yeah. South Paw. So somebody with the right hand must be the North Paw. P-A-W-Y. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, there's a good reason for okay, it. Okay. Tell found, me. I found it interesting. Tell me the good reason, Marsh. When the first... I'll be the judge of that. This uh, is what you always <laughs> say to me. That's what I always say. <laughs> when the first baseball diamonds were laid out, there were no night games, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to keep the afternoon or setting sun out of the batter's eyes, home plate was positioned so that the hitter was facing east, which meant the pitcher was facing west. Oh, so it all goes back to the way baseball stadiums were originally constructed. I didn't know that. So they were all set up so that the pitcher looked to the west. He was always facing west, and that would mean his right arm is in the north and his left arm is in the south. Okay, I get it. Most pitchers threw with their right arm. But the rare and dreaded left-hander pitching arm was on the more unfamiliar south side of the pitcher. And he was referred to as a southpaw. Okay. Pretty cool. That makes sense. All right. Here's a question for you, Marcia. Jesus was never called Jesus in his lifetime by his fellow Jews. What was his actual title or name? Herb. 
No. Not Herb. <laughs> okay. Uh, Herbert Marsha. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, he was known all of his life to his friends, enemies, and disciples as Joshua. Really? Yeah, that means Jehovah is salvation. Joshua was what he was called. The name Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. But it was How not, did I not know that? It was not used by the Hebrews. And Christ is also a Greek word, which means the anointed one, and that is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So the words Jesus and Christ are actually Greek words. They were not used by the Hebrews. Hmm. Okay, and speaking of giving your two cents worth, Bob, why is adding your opinion to something or giving unsolicited advice called your two cents worth? Because that's all it's worth. <laughs> it actually has a good reason to be called that. Really? No, yeah. I don't know what it was. Okay. If someone speaks up out of turn or forcefully uh, inserts their unsolicited opinion, which we don't know about that in this relationship. That's the basis of our relationship. <laughs> it is. Here's five cents. The expression dates back to the late 19th century. When if you wanted to write an opinion to the editor of a newspaper or complain to a member of legislature, the cost of mailing the letter was the price of a two-cent stamp. No kidding. So that's where it came from? It was the postage at the time? Yeah, two cents worth became an Americanism for of little value. That is amazing. Yeah. That's great. So what what does the stamp cost today? Oh, is that your... What's your forever stamps worth, I think? (laughs) That's what I'm going to (laughs) say. All right, Marsha, I got some questions on a movie. What film was so successful and had such a long run in the theaters that theaters had to reorder prints because they wore out? Really? Yes. All right, give me a decade or us. It was 20-some-odd years ago. The 1990s. Yep. Late 1990s. What, what ran out? What was so popular? So successful and had such a long run, theaters had to reorder prints because they wore out. It wasn't oh, the 1990s. Did we see it? Yes, we saw it. Did the kids see it? Yes, they saw it. Was it? In fact, they saw it with us. Titanic. That's it. Oh. <laughs> the Titanic. According to Mental Floss, the popularity of the Titanic was so massive with people lining up for repeat viewings, some theaters reportedly had to get new film reels to replace the ones wow. they'd worn out. Yeah, think about that. I wonder why, when you look back, why, that was such a huge It was hit. a big movie. A very good movie, actually. You know, I get got, it, like anything is very popular, it gets ridiculed after a while. Yeah. You know, like Star Wars got ridiculed yeah. for a long time. But Titanic also holds another distinction. It remained in cinema so long, it was the first movie ever released for home showing while it was still playing in the theaters. Really? Yep, the first one. Back in those days, the home movie medium was what? VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, I have another one here. What paper film prop from the Titanic recently sold at auction for $16,000? Piece of paper. What was that? Say it again. What paper film prop? Prop. From the Titanic, recently sold at auction for $16,000. Gosh, I don't know, Bob. It was a naked drawing of Kate Winslet. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, that was one of the drawings that Leonardo DiCaprio's yeah, character supposedly drew, supposedly drew yeah. of Rose. Well, and it showed Kate wearing nothing but that heart of the ocean necklace. And yeah. it was sold by Premier Props Auction House in 2011. The identity of the buyer and the final price were never released publicly, but the highest known bid was $16,000. Well, see, at least... And the drawing was done 
actually by director James Cameron, not he Leonardo. Really? Yeah, he was an he artist too. He did it too. Well, yeah. he by himself. He's is, a very uh, good artist is apparently. A, is a famous person. So, yeah. actually that was uh, it wasn't stupid money, you know, like you go buy salt and pepper from some set. That's actual art. Yes. Uh, and had some And related value. specifically to something in the film, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. I've got a, a famous writer who had a very eccentric habit, D.H. Lawrence. What was one of his very eccentric habits? He's a very original, controversial writer of the 20th century. Well, I don't know. Can he, you give me a hint? Well, I'll just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he liked to remove his clothes and climb mulberry trees. Really? Yeah. He liked well, to climb mulberry trees naked. Yeah. I don't know why, <laughs> but he did. Okay, here's well, another one. What great American poet was such a recluse that she would only communicate with guests from an adjoining room? Oh, brother. Uh, it was Emily Dickinson. Oh, yeah. She wouldn't stay in the same room with guests. She would go to an adjoining room and speak to them from there. Very odd, right? Oh. But became a, a great, you know, she was a great poet. Wrote some wonderful stuff. Yeah. Just couldn't talk to people <laughs> face to face. Well, can you tell me the differences between a pandemic, an epidemic, and an endemic? They're all demic. That's correct. Which, and you know what demic means? <laughs> no, I don't know what it's that a, means. It's a Greek word uh, from demos, meaning people. Okay. So, so they all have to do with people. Pandemic, it means it's it's across the world or across the Pan meanings a distance, traveling, encompassing correct. many lands. Correct. Epidemic, epi, epi, epi. What does epi mean? Well, diseases that spread outside their original boundaries are epidemic. An abbreviation for epimia, meaning among. So it doesn't go all over the world, but it jumped its original boundaries. So what was the third one? The third one was endemic. Endemic. That means like within a species or something, right? Yes, or a place. With the Greek prefix en, meaning in or native to a defined district or place, like chicken pox. Kids get it, and kids all in the same school might all get it. I got another history question for you. Okay. Let's go back to the centennial, not the bicentennial, the centennial of the United States. Now, that was a big, big World's Fair in Philadelphia in 1876. Mm -hmm. There were a number of things introduced there. One was a milestone in communication. Another one was an exotic food. What are those two things? Was it hot dog? No. Hot dogs came about 1904. You have that at the top of your brain? I know that. (laughs) One of my favorite foods. Yes. Uh, Okay, tell me, Bob. Okay, again, what were considered the two most unusual items exhibited at the United States Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia? One was communication, one was a food. Yeah, okay, telephone and hot dogs, that's what I Telephone Uh and bananas. Bananas? Oddly enough, you can hold both up to your face and it looks like you're talking (laughs) to somebody. Yeah, it was the first time Americans ever saw the fruit and it was sold for a whopping 1876 price of 10 cents a piece, which was big. The banana was wrapped in tin foil, despite the fact that it's a fruit with a peel. (laughs) And then, you know, eat your banana while you're going over and looking at this new thing called the telephone. Okay, well, that's... uh... (laughs) Okay, Bob, have you ever wondered... Where the ever-so-rude one-finger salute came from. The one-finger salute? Yeah. <laughs> you mean the we're number one symbol? N- well, That's no. what I always thought it was. When people gave me I that, I'd go back and give That's, it back to them. That was and the... they got upset with me. <laughs> got into fights over that. That is so Bob Smith. Yeah, we're number one. Hey, the kids hey, must like me. Don't fight me. <laughs> uh, where did that come from? Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah. 
No, I don't know. And yeah. of course, it means different things in different places. Are you talking about the Anglo-Saxon world? I am. Okay. No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when the outnumbered English faced the French at the Battle of Agincourt, they were armed with a relatively new weapon, the longbow. Okay. The French were so amused that they vowed to cut off the middle finger of each British archer. When the longbows won the day, the English jeered the retreating French by raising the middle finger <laughs> in a gesture that still means, among other things, in your face. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> because this was a, a finger that they used. For the longbow. For longbow. Wow. And I had so, no idea. Uh, yeah, we're going to cut off all your middle fingers. And when they lost. <laughs> hey, we got our middle fingers. <laughs> we got them. And from that point on, it meant, what did you say? It meant other things, uh, <laughs> like like in your face, which yeah. it still means today. I never think of it that way, but yes, yes you're right. Yes. Okay, that's good. All right, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a moment with more on The Off-Ramp. Okay, we're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Marcia, I have a question. Okay. What Western power once waged a war to force an Eastern power to deal in drugs? Started a war to force another country to deal in drugs. Uh, I don't know. Great Britain. Oh, was it? The Western power was Great Britain, the Eastern power was China, and the drug was opium. The Opium Wars, the first of which went from 1839 to 1842, the British forced the opium trade on China. Prior to that, the Chinese had declared opium to be illegal, but the British effort helped spread the drug throughout the world. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they fought a war to force the Chinese to, you know, grow what, and sell what opium. What year was that? 1839 to 1842. Okay, you're a singer, Bob. Mm -hmm. According to Guinness Book of World Records, how long would you guess is the longest held single pitch note in a studio recording? In a studio recording? Yeah. 18 seconds. No. Oh, 30 Th seconds. More. You're kidding. No. In a studio recording. Yeah. So they've got this documented. Yeah. Okay. It was 39 seconds. Wow. A professional rendition of uh, the Bernard Igner classic, Everything Must Change, was recorded in a private studio by a singer and a singing coach to the stars, T. Green. In 2011, this happened, mm -hmm. and it concluded with a same pitch note that lasted for a lung-bursting 39 seconds. And so I tried it. That's hard. It well, yes, I went thirty, but I it. It's pretty it, weak at the end. Yeah, yeah, it wobbled. It didn't a lot. sound like it was professional. <laughs> okay, I want to go back to the Titanic. I've got a couple of questions sure. here. What iconic line in the film was ad libbed? It was not in the script. Famous line from Titanic. Famous, What's uh, the most famous line from Titanic? I'm trying to think. Gosh, it's been a long time. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio climbs to the mast oh, of the ship. Oh, yeah, and he stands up there. And he says? He says, yes, everybody knows that, and I do too. <laughs> it, he says, I'm king of the world. King of the world, forgot. And he made that up that yeah, there? Yeah, he did, he yeah. Up. When he first got up on the end of the ship, he improvised that line, I'm king of the world. Perfect. And director James Cameron liked it so much, he kept it in the movie. Yeah. It was ad-libbed. It wasn't part yeah, of the script. it was perfect. But it's listed as number 100 on the American Film Institute's list of greatest movie quotes. And another question on the Titanic, why did James Cameron, the director, reshoot a key scene after the movie was released and in home video. Why did he reshoot a key scene? 
Because everybody hated the ending? No, no. They oh. did do multiple endings. Yes, that But I the know. ship always went down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't change that. They couldn't change that. Okay, tell me. Okay, well, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, we've yeah, seen him on television, yeah. he wrote director James Cameron quite a snarky email, according oh, to Cameron. Really? Yeah, the scientist didn't see Titanic until years after it was released, but he took issue with the stars that Rose would have seen while lying on the piece of driftwood and looking into the sky. The star field wasn't what she would have seen in real life at that place and at that time. So James Cameron reshot the stars for the 3D edition of the movie. Well, good for Cameron. Yeah, because a lot of these films are done that way, and it's a glaring error. Like, one film I remember seeing, it was John Wayne, The Green Berets, right? Yeah. And there was a scene where the sun was setting and they're on the beach. Well, in Vietnam, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Because the sun's coming up in the east in the morning on the beach, you know? So there are some things that have been done like that by Hollywood over the years. Yeah. Oh, lots of them. Always They're good fun. to correct them. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Mm-hmm. You never were a waiter, were you? No, I wasn't. Yeah. I probably wisely did not get involved in carrying food to people's tables. <laughs> I would probably have dropped them on everybody. Well, uh, this was a survey done of North American service workers. Okay. And they rated the best tippers. Well, what's the best tipper? Other restaurant workers. That makes sense. Yes. Uh, Number two, regular customers, especially cigarette smokers. Really? (laughs) Cigarette smokers? Yeah, I think they feel guilty. Uh, Three, young male wannabes. It doesn't say wanna be what, but I assume actors. Or wanna something. be wanna yeah. be married to the waitress, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number four, small business owners. Small business people, yeah, they would be sympathetic to uh, yes. somebody who's making as, tips. You as know? is number five, tavern owners. And they Num- should be yeah. sympathetic to people needing <laughs> tips. Yeah. Number six, hairdressers. Seven, liquor salesmen. Number eight, taxi drivers. Nine, salesmen, and ten, musicians. <laughs> who are poor and can't afford yeah, to tip that often. Say. Yeah, You want to know who the And you've got the people. worst tippers there, too. I do. In order. Number one, the worst tippers, senior citizens. Really? Yeah. Oh, number, that's bad. Number two, people between 21 and 24. Yeah, that's just ignorance. Yeah. Uh, three, tourists. Four, teachers. Five, women. I would think teachers and women would be more prone to tip, but they're yeah, not. Yeah. Oh, oh, I've 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 seen women go back and pick up their husband's tips. I <gasps> mean, yes. Really? Yes, it's it can be. I know a woman who complains every time her husband tips and he's already paid tax and he pays a tip on top of the tax and he doesn't care. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> and me. All right, I just you just pay for the food, not Here everything. we go. Okay. All right. All right. And uh <laughs> number 6, oh, this gets me. This one, lawyers. Ah. Oh. Uh uh, seven doctors, eight computer nerds. These are the worst tippers. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, computer nerds, nine bankers, Ugh. and ten pipe smokers. <laughs> so cigarette smokers tip, Yeah, but, but pipe smokers don't. Yeah, they're more erudite, that's right? That's weird. Uh-huh. That's a good one, isn't That's it? a very good list. I like uh-huh. that. Okay, I got two more Titanic questions. How many Oscars did the Titanic win, and how many were for acting? Well, I'll overall, say first, how overall, many? How many? How did many? They win? Sixteen. No, no movies ever. Won I know. That many. Okay, eleven or twelve. Eleven. Okay. Yeah, okay. that was eleven, and that was a great number. I think that was first film that ever did that after Ben Hur back in the fifties. And how many for best acting? How many made it for acting? Uh, zero. 
That's exactly right. It made megastars out of Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, but none of the Oscars were for acting. 87-year-old Gloria Stewart, she was considered a lock for the Supporting Actress Trophy, but she lost to Kim Bassinger for L.A. Confidential, and Kate Winslet lost to Helen Hunt for As Good As It Gets. Twelve years before she won an Oscar, and it was 2009. You know what it was for? For The Reader. Oh. Yeah. Okay, what actor learned they won their biggest part in their career while wearing a straight jacket? That was, <laughs> well, was that uh, um, Jack Nicholson? No, this is somebody in this movie. I have no idea. They got the news when they were wearing a straight jacket. Kate Winslet. She was in England filming Hamlet, and she was wearing a straight jacket to film Ophelia's famous breakdown scene. Oh, wow. So she had a straight jacket on when she learned. Oh. Hey, okay. you won. Oh, that's pretty esoteric. You won a nomination for the Titanic. Okay, I've got a, this is a fact I stumbled upon, but uh, if you are like me and you spent a lot of your high school years in Illinois, you learned a lot about Abraham Lincoln. And the Lincoln-Douglas debates went, occurred all over the state when he was running for U.S. Senate. Well, what, some of Stephen Douglas's ill feelings toward Abraham Lincoln, what did they stem from? This is something people don't think about. Lincoln-Douglas debates, great rivalry. What was part of the rivalry? Um... Part of the rivalry it had to do with uh, the, their jobs. They were both lawyers. It had to do with romance. Romance. Did yeah. they both love Mary? Well, yes. Mary Todd chose Lincoln over Douglas as her boyfriend. No she, kidding. She, went, she met both men at the same time. She was courted by both of them. She felt she had to decide which of the two men was most likely to attain future success. She chose Lincoln as her best chance for glory. And so they were always rivals, and yeah. they were always ex-boyfriends. <laughs> Let me just say this. Stephen Douglas dodged a bullet. Well, it was an unfortunate <laughs> thing with her mental illness and everything. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Anyway, that's an interesting. I didn't know that. I fact. didn't either. Little known facts about well-known people, Marcia. <laughs> that's what we're all about. That is. Okay. Referring back to the best tippers, mm-hmm. waiters, waitresses, and bartenders identified good tippers from best to worst by what they drank in the following order. You want to guess what the top couple were? The people who drank that were the best tippers and the worst tippers. Okay, I would say people who drink beer tip more than people who drink hard liquor. Well, they came in number three, actually. Number one was vodka drinkers. (laughs) Number two was rum. Then it goes down to beer, beer drinkers. Okay. Number four, tequila, bourbon, scotch, wine, Ah. Uh, gin, whiskey, and number 10, I love this, is non-alcoholic and creamy or fancy drinks with umbrellas. They do not tip well. Right, or frozen layered or flaming drinks. Isn't, All, isn't it funny that vodka, yeah. so you have some yeah. of the highest alcohol content there. Yeah, I'm going to tip. The martini drinkers, <laughs> they, you know. And, well, they uh, get inebriated faster and they're more likely to tip. But that just kills me. The non-alcoholic drinkers and the umbrella drinks are the worst tippers. I like umbrella drinks. (laughs) I tip. Would you like me to uh, close up with a quick quote from Muhammad Ali? Sounds good. Don't count the days. Make the days count. That's very good advice. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed our little soiree into trivia. And if you would like to give us a question, you can go to our website, theofframp.show. Oh, yeah. And go to? Contact us. And just write it in there. Give us a question and the answer and who you want it to be given to. And, uh, you know, your name and location. That'd be fun. That's right. We'll give you a shout out. 
I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And you've been listening to The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.